Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome, everyone. This is Jessica Zhu. I am an assistant professor of religion at University of Southern California at Dornsife, and also a New Books Network host in Buddhist studies. Today, we are super lucky to have Professor Swati Gangli from Vishwabharati, West Bengal, India, to talk with us about her new book, Tagore's University, A History of Vishwabharati, 1921-1961. to This book is published by Permanent Black, one of the most prestigious publishers in India. For those of us in the U.S., you can find in the blog post of this um, podcast um, the ABE books, uh, link to the ABE books where you can order this amazing book. So Professor Gangli um, is, a prof- uh, is a professor of English at the Department of English, Vishra Bharati. Her interests include Rabindranath Tagore's and his times, European Renaissance, feminist studies, women's writing, translation studies, and theater. She received the Charles Wallace Fellowship for Translation Studies in 1996 and has translated and co-edited The Stream Within. I highly recommend this book as well to check out from your library. And um, that's a, a anthology compiling contemporary Bengali women's short stories. She has also co-edited two um, anthologies of essays on Rabindranath Tagore, and she wrote fictions in Bengali, and is also an occasional painter, very multi-talented. And she's the co-founder of Abang Alap, a non-profit society based in Kolkata, focusing on education and gender. So welcome, Swati. Thank you so much for writing this super informative book. It's massive, almost 500 pages. But it's a page turner for readers not familiar with Indian languages and names and conventions. That means readers like me. It may seem daunting to keep track of who does what, who is related to whom, who studied under whom. But even if you know you, you cannot hold all this sort of information in mind, you still get out of the reading experience a crystal clear sense of how radical this social experiment is, how it started, how it managed to survive for such a long time, and then was then co-opted by the state. And more importantly, how Tagore's vision is still relevant today and could serve as um, a blueprint for future experiments, especially how we revamp our higher education. So Swati, I like, I'd like to start our interview with our traditional New Books Network question. Could you please tell us a bit more about yourself and how and why you came to write this book on the institutional history of a university where you are currently working, even though your academic training is in English literature? And what prompted the change of research directions and what do you feel, and why do you feel it's important to write this book at this moment? Right. Uh, Thank you very much, uh, Jessica, for uh, organizing this interview and giving me this fantastic opportunity to to be able to communicate uh, my responses to your uh, very perceptive questions, which uh, you are 
you've put and which you will be putting uh, to me. So, uh, yeah, so a big thank you uh, for that. And uh, I want to uh, sort of introduce myself really as um, a person who's uh, engaged in literature and life. And uh, I grew up, I was born and I grew up in Kolkata, which was Calcutta in uh, former times. And uh, I studied there and I studied in a university which is actually globally recognized as uh, very premier. It is Jadavpur University in the Department of English. And I also became uh, interested in feminism and feminist readings and ideas of history. But I read English literature, as you uh, ask me. I read English literature, which is what many of us um, uh, did uh, when uh, we were just, you know, trying to think through life at that point when you were 18 or 19. Uh, so we felt that this was a discipline we were sort of, you know, comfortable with in many senses. So um, I think... Uh, when I started doing my research, which was late uh, in, in English literature, I realized that there is nothing called a single discipline research. All research is necessarily uh, interdisciplinary or multidisciplined. So uh, my work, which was on gendering uh, the grotesque in the Renaissance uh, literature and drama in particular, uh, involves a lot of theory. So Foucault, Derrida, Kristeva, feminist uh, readings, uh, ideas of politics, of culture, of questioning what we understand, the received opinion of the domain, very prestigious and powerful domain called the Renaissance in England, in Europe at that point. Uh, so I would say, therefore, that all research is multidisciplinary. So from this, I would uh, like to sort of address this question about, uh, you know, history. I don't think that one really makes a major shift in that sense. It is a shift, definitely. But since I uh, began by saying that research itself is multidisciplinary, I would like to say my interest uh, in the history of the institution can probably probably be located uh, within a two intersecting fields. One is that history itself has changed over the years, our understanding of history itself. So history is just not a set of facts which are gleaned from official documents, uh, the history of uh, regimes or, you know, the way in which uh, officially we've understood uh, things to have uh, changed or transformed. We now talk about people's history, we talk about feminist history, we talk about you know, history from below. So history is largely, as I understand, as Hayden White has alerted us to, it is the narrative, it is the historiography which is important, the writing of history itself. So I would say that writing was a thing that I was trained in. I learned to read writing and I was also writing. Uh, related to this, I would say that historians often use literature as their source. So I see at the, that you know this line between history and literature, or philosophy and literature, to be not rigid but more blurred. So when I started thinking about the history of this institution where I was teaching, it came uh, that interest came also from the life of Rabindranath. And we were teaching Rabindranath Tagore in his institution. And uh, the 
the immediate impetus for this, I would say, was a big conference I had organized on Rabindranath Tagore and the nation. And I realized that one of the things that we had missed out in a big way was uh, the story of his institution. And it was around this time that my interest in the place and the institution began in a big way, which basically doesn't mean that I wasn't thinking about the place or about Tagore. I was thinking about the place. I kept hearing stories from people around here who were like old people, uh, people who had been in Shantini Ketan for a very long time. They had stories to tell about Tagore, about his contemporaries, about their settling in Shantini Ketan. And I realized that many of these were also just anecdotes. They often did not have a kind of backing in terms of, and I don't mean just official documents, but also, for example, written accounts, so memoirs, uh, interviews, which I took. So it grew also from the life that I was living and from the work in a place which was of great importance to me. And it was also moving in a direction uh, which was, in a sense, away from my Renaissance uh, training as a, as a scholar of the Renaissance. But I would say my initial training about narratives, I think, because I also write fiction, I also felt that, you know, this was a story which I wanted to communicate with those who were interested. Uh, this book actually... Uh, was part of uh, the New India Foundation, which is a very, which is a very prestigious uh, book writing fellowship. Uh, I say prestigious also because there aren't very many book writing fellowships, and this uh, was uh, I, I, I was one of the recipients of this in two thousand twelve. So uh, the mandate for that for that fellowship was modern India. And I was told to write about the history of, uh, they liked my proposal and they said, we want to do a history, we want you to do a history of this institution from 1951 to 61. Why this time? This is post-independence India and also the time in which it becomes a central university, what you call as the kind of you know, takeover by the state, which is not really what is happening. But I'll, I'll explain this in a bit. So, uh, so that was the kind of mandate, that was their interest. Ramachandra Guha, who you may know, um, was one of the people on the board and he had a special interest in this. So I said, but uh, we have to look at the past to look at this time. So when I began work, I realized I had to go back in time to be able to look at this particular moment. That is, you know, the time when it became a central university. So I went back. And as I went back, I finally found myself at the moment of the origin, which is 1921, which is the moment of the beginning of uh, this uh, institution. So in a sense, it was written over a long period of time, and it was written with a certain, certain kind of unhurriedness. I th thought it was important to be able to uh, take my time to write about this institution, which was also growing up. Uh, you know, not like, you know, it was there altogether, but it was growing up gradually, slowly. So it needed, it was an institution which was growing in time. So I needed, as a, as a researcher, I needed to give it that particular time. 
So yes, it uh, it was probably uh, sort of you know started to come out earlier, maybe twenty one, which is that one hundred years of the institution, twenty twenty one, is how I would have liked to be, but that was a COVID year, so we had to push it back to twenty twenty two. So in a sense that, but I would also say it is very uh, interesting that this is a. Uh, a book which is about a university which is set up by one individual, but who saw of it, who thought of it as a public university, not as in funded by the state, but one that belongs to the people, right? So people's university, and I think the idea of the public university is under attack. Uh, Everywhere, probably, and definitely in India, where we have seen a massive privatization of education, and uh, this has been a matter of concern for educationists, for people who are who are teachers, people like us who work in public institutions. So things have changed; they are changing, and very soon, probably, very little will be left. Of what was, so I think it was important. You know, I didn't think about all these things, but I believe that uh, this also became a you know point of convergence of all of these. Uh, this moment of looking at Vishwabharati to set up with an ideal, uh, an ideal which was global. You know, Rabindranath would use the word Vishwa, which. Uh, cannot really be translated either as cosmopolitan or international as we often do but uh, you know if you have a later question i would like to respond to, to that so as of now this is where i will i'd like to stop but thank you swati it is just so um informative and so rich because history literature at the bottom right at the heart of it is storytelling is narrative is not about objective facts, right? And then the story is important because it's about people's university and the viability of it. So, Swati, your book has like eight chapters divided into two parts. So, chapters in the first part are arranged chronologically. So, we see the struggles and occasional successes of materializing Rabindranath's vision for education and society. That he wanted Vishwaparati to be here. I just quote um, page four thirty one to be an inclusive, participatory institution of the future of independent India, where the mind was going to be free and the head was going to be held high, and Rabindranath's gift to the country, and his life's best treasure. But um, it's also about his eventual, for lack of better word, demise. And part two, instead, you zooms in. You zoom in closer to the funding and trajectories of individual institutes under um, this umbrella, Tagore's University. So, for example, China Institute Oriental Studies, uh, Visual and Performing Arts, Rural Reconstruction in Srinikten, and the ma、uh, Material History of Shantinikten, the town where Vishwabharati sits, its settlement, its community, and its culture. Just a note for the readers: this dual structure that weaves chronology and individual institute makes this very easy for us, right? We don't have to read it chapter by chapter. I read the one on Chin Bhavan first because you know that's about China studies, and that's what I'm most interested in. 
And and then I read the chapters, the first chapter about why and how Rabindranath conceived this idea of Vishwabharati, the world university or people's university, um, cosmopolitan university. So you don't have to read the whole book all at once. Every page you read, you get rich information, amazing stories, and thought-provoking insight. It's certainly a book worthy of rereading many times for everyone who wishes to change the contemporary culture and practice of higher education. So Swati, I'd like to start our interview with your introduction. Here, you made clear what Vishwabharati was meant to be for Rabindranath. Um, in this introduction, you said, uh, you, I'm trying to quote, Vishwa Bharati was the crystallization of an ideal, a world center of learning in India, conceived in the wake of the destructive World War I, seen by many intellectuals as the bankrupt of the European Enlightenment project and their civilization mission. Could you please share a bit with the readers and uh, future readers and audiences, what is Vishwa, what is Bharat, and um, what is the ideal behind his name? of Rabindranath University. Right. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, I think I would like to sort of, uh, you know, locate uh, the beginnings of uh, the idea of Vishwabharati uh, in the fact that uh, Rabindranath became a person who was globally recognized, recognized across the world following uh, his uh, the, the award of the Nobel Prize in Literature for the Gitanjali, which is uh, a translation of his verse, his lyrics, uh, taken from various sources. And uh, I think that is really the moment of arrival of Rabindranath, who was well known in Bengal and respected as a lyricist, as a poet, as a short story writer, and an essayist, very importantly, a political uh, person in, in many ways, uh, who was involved in many uh, decolonizing efforts you know, till, uh, till that time. But he became a sort of overnight, he became a world known poet, you know. And uh, this is important, I believe, because he became a public figure, right? He became a public intellectual. He was invited to speak across the globe, and not just on poetry, but also on matters which were of importance at that time. And uh, this is the time when the First World War is raging across Europe. So he went on these, uh, this trip uh, to Japan, and to, um, uh, to the U.S., where he gave a set of lectures, which were later collected called, in a book called Nationalisms. So the idea of what uh, has happened to the world because of the thinking about nations, about thinking uh, within this boundaries of, uh, of a certain kind of race and region, and uh, the idea of the nation, which Rabindranath, uh, which uh, which Tagore believes is uh, has been very dehumanizing, because he believes that it is in uh, it is hand in glove with the with capitalism and with colonialism. So he sees these three as a kind of linked uh, axis of destruction of civilizational values, and uh, if we know that for Rabindranath. 
ancient civilizations were very important. Uh, the civilization in China, for example, was a very important uh, sort of, you know, point of interest for him. He kept going back to this in several references. And even before uh, he talks, begins to talk about decolonizing efforts in India, he spoke about the opium trade in China and how it had sort of, you know, wholesale destroyed uh, a fantastic people and with, uh, with, with culture, which was so amazing and uh, which, of course, continues to be amazing as he would uh, realize. So he was thinking, I think, at, not I think, he was thinking, he talks about it in a letter to his son, Rokindranath. He says that, uh, I feel that uh, there, I have a kind of mission to provide a kind of antidote to the poison of nationalism. These are his words. And that will have to be a kind of uh, attempt to bring uh, people across the globe, people who think alike, so artists, uh, thinkers, uh, history, people who write history, social scientists, agricultural scientists, artists, together in one place. And what is really daring and absolutely amazing is that he thinks about Shantini Ketan as this place. The Shantini Ketan pre-existed Vishwabharati. It was an ashram, a uh, place of religious retreat. But he built a school there, which is which is called, which I refer to as the Ashram School. So between 1901 and 1918, when he finally lays the foundation of Vishwabharati, there is the Ashram School. But I believe, and this is one of my thesis in the book, that his idea about Vishwabharati, Vishwa, which means world, and Bharati, which means learning. But it also has a very interesting play on the word Bharat, which is India. So, and you know, there is a lot of controversy right now, or a lot of debate which is going on about India becoming Bharat, right? So, Bharati means actually Saraswati, the goddess of learning, but it also has a link with Bharat. So, where the world and India, where world and learning meet together, that was the idea of Vishwabharati. And uh, between 21, which is a formal inauguration of Vishwabharati, uh, just before that, from 1920, Rabindranath is scouting for, and this might interest you uh, in particular, he's scouting for Indologists, people who are specialists in Buddhist studies, right? Buddhist studies is a very important field for Rabindranath because he sees it as a center of uh, uh, ancient learning, not just Hinduism, but Buddhism. He sees it as a center, very important center for learning. And he's scouting for Orientalist thinkers and scholars. So Silva Levy is one person he is in touch with. And Levy actually is uh, slated to go to Harvard. And he says, OK, that can wait. I will go to Shantaniketan. Of course, he's paid a fat fee, actually, uh, 6,000 rupees in those days, which is a lot of money. But uh, he decides to bring contact people from across uh, the globe. He goes, obviously, he's sort of traveling. He's going to Europe, he's going to America. And uh, he's thinking of people from across the globe coming to set up these three centers, the Oriental Research, Silva Levy is going to inaugurate that, the uh, Visual and Performing Arts, for which he is thinking about Nandulal Bush, who is a very uh, promising uh, young artist, a student of Abhinindranath Tagore, who's a very well-known artist also in the West, in Japan and in China. They, he has contacts with the artists in Japan in particular. 
And uh, the final is the Center for Rural Reconstruction because he believes that no learning can be complete if it is not linked to the world in which it is located. So you can't have, and this is why I uh, get a little upset when people say that, you know, Rabindranath is living in an ivory tower. He never lived in an ivory tower. He was always grounded. And the instance of Sriniketan, which is the entire uh, sort of, you know, uh, idea of rethinking village economy, agriculture, uh, sort of uh, uh, the way in which people have traditionally lived, the problems, especially the conditions like malaria and other diseases, all of this has been central to his thinking, not only with Vishwabharati, but, you know, from a time which is earlier on. So this is Vishwa, the world and the world in what we would say just immediate, in our immediacy, all of this is the world for him. So that is how he's imagining this institution. Thank you so much, Swati. This is so um, thought-provoking, but also very, very incisive because I think people often mistook transcendent imminent as like two exclusive spheres, but for Tagore, it's definitely both. And that's why when we think about him as a spiritual poet, which he is, but at the same time, not at expense of his decolonization effort, his rural reconstruction efforts, like the word and the spiritual are one, right? Are connected, at least intimately connected. So um, that's the ideal behind Vishwabharati. So um, Rabindranath's um, ideal for education and society. So my favorite chapter, chapter one, a poet's ashram school and the world center of culture lays out very lucidly how and why Tagore envisioned a paradigm shift in education that's grounded in his belief in universalism and the conviction of anti-utilitarianism, which is supported um, by his confidence, here as quote, in indigenous knowledge system and culture as the basis for cooperative links with the world. That's on page 27. Wow, this is just like um, echoing so much of what you just said, right? So please tell us a bit more about how this vision dismantled this tired East-West binary, um, worldly, otherworldly binary, and get many top-notch scholars from all around the world to tell you for this new paradigm of education and way of life at the same time. You've mentioned that V, and I'm 100% sure like in your book, you mentioned so many others. Mm-hmm. Tell us right. more, please. Yes. Um, so I think, the, um, and uh, those familiar with Edward Said's work on Orientalism uh, will know about how the Orient is, uh, and he talks about this uh, with instances, not of India, but of many other uh, places in Asia, that uh, the East is a kind of construct, has been a kind of construct by the West for varying reasons, for political control, for a certain understanding of establishing uh, superiority of race, for uh, uh, establishment of uh, an understanding of civilization civilization and the mission of civilization, civilizational mission. So the East-West binary is something that Rabindranath is trying to dismantle. Uh, this idea that you know the East is East and the West is West and never the twain shall meet is something that Tagore does not believe in. Uh, 
he believes that it is perfectly possible for the East and the West to come together, not at that kind of hierarchized way in which it has been conceived of for so long, where the West is uh, male, it is active, it is uh, it's able to conceptualize, it is superior in many fields. And the East is, you know, typically, and this is where I would come in as a feminist, you know, the feminization of the East in many ways. So passive, docile, not really possessing culture and a civilization. So Rabindranath is suggesting that it is important for us to really ground ourselves in our knowledge instead, instead of these misconceptions which we have perpetuated for a very long time. So he's doing two things. He's telling people, he's addressing both in his lectures and his writing, that we need to go back to what you said, indigenous you know, knowledge systems. And interestingly, he thinks that the indigenous knowledge systems, what belongs to India, what belongs to the East, lies in its religion. And he is not referring to theology. He's thinking of religion as a way of life, as a way of learning, as a way of culture. So he talks about Hinduism, Buddhism, Zoroastrianism, Jainism, uh, Islam, Sikhism, Christianity. He says that all of these are repositories of learning and we have forgotten these. So we need to go back and relearn, rethink our relationship to these knowledge systems. It is only then that we can, uh, with our firm, feet firmly on the ground, that we can look to the West, not as supplicants, but as people who are in dialogue. And to the West, he says, you have to come here and work with the scholars here, not produce your knowledge out there, and then uh, sort of, you know, disperse it as the most important truth. Truth will only emerge through a collaboration of the minds, a cooperative of the minds. So that, I think, is a very, very, very important, very radical way of thinking about uh, I would say global relations. Definitely very important decolonizing step, not anti-colonial in, in the received sense of the term, but I think Rabindranath is thinking about the West in two ways. One is the West, which is uh, the, the materialistic West, one which is capitalistic, one which is just concerned with its profits, and the other is the West, which is also a thinker, a philosopher, the West, which is given so much in terms of its learning you know so these two learnings you have to uh, free yourself of prejudices of fears of anxieties about each other and come together this i think is a kind of world peace mission you know it was never given the nobel for the pre-peace but i think you know this is really the most important effort that is happening just after the war, it's a post-war, you know, interim period between the two wars that Vishwabharati is developing. And I think this is a very important peace effort which is happening. And a peace effort which is not diplomatic, but which is happening at the level of learning and culture. The culture which would involve, as I keep saying, not just the of arts and performances, but also agriculture, the rootedness in the soil. So he's thinking about all of this. 
I think uh, that's how I would uh, think about, you know, that's how I sort of talk about Rabindranath's um, effort, which is actually dismantling this East-West binary. And uh, it was possible, actually, so many scholars from the West, all of them Indologists, actually, who came here after Silva Levy left. Uh, Maurice Winternitz, for example, whose major work was in the Mahabharat. And Mahabharat, which is a very well-known Indian epic, and he was working with Vidushekar Shastri, Vidushekar Bhattacharya, who was a Sanskrit pundit, who also had many collections of manuscripts. And with the Bhandarkar Oriental Research Institute, which also had its own manuscripts. So it's a collation of manuscripts. It's a work of incredible textual scholarship, which is happening and happening in Chantiniketan. It goes on for much long, much after the demise of Rabindranath. They keep bringing out these volumes throughout the 50s. These are like, you know, definitive works which they're trying to bring out on the epic. And I think it is important that Rabindranath feels that, uh, you know, a scholar like Winternitz can share his methodology, his training with the traditional kind of training that people in India, Sanskrit scholars, pundits have. And, you know, this coming together of also two different modes of learning, I would say, is very important because we tend to separate these. We tend to sort of, you know, not uh, be in conversation, not be in dialogue. So Vishwabharati, the effort of Vishwabharati was to constantly be in this dialogue. This is especially true for the, you know, oriental research. But uh, if... uh, there is an occasion to talk about oriental research more specifically. I will talk about uh, that. Thank you, Swati. This is again just like super informative about Tagore's kind of a totally both end non dualist understanding, like indigenous knowledge system as and religion as repository, right? Not as seen from the secular state. Religion is something about spiritual only, not public space. But for him, religion is really decent um, repositories of learnings and then the learning systems of the east west right this kind of um, what we use trained in academic way of knowing is not the only valid way there are many other ways of knowing that might seem compatible commensurable with the academic way of learning that's why conversations needed so those those are just like truly radical i see it as the decolonization of methodology of the or academic fields like way before decolonization um, methodology became a thing um, so chapter two, let's move on for the interest in interest of time. Vishwabharati, an idea and an institution, 1921 to 1941. This chapter narrates the myriad details, the tasks that Rabindranath had to manage, such as fundraising, details of how you're inviting scholars around the world, setting up the academic par- uh, programs, institutional infrastructures, scheduling administrators, staff, publishing journals, starting research projects, guidelines for dealing with disagreements and conflicts. You ended this chapter with Rabindranath's passing in 1941, and you commented that it's not at all speculation to suggest that Vishwabharati was so precious to Rabindranath because it was the only material institutional form that he saw as continuing or perpetuating his intellectual legacy. So this chapter, like 
um, every other chapter is full of anecdotes, unexpected turns of events, somehow which Rabatis survived all the curveballs life throw at it. So could you please maybe, for the interest of the audience and future readers, give us one or two examples of how Rabindranath and his friends toiled for materializing this kind of intellectual ideal and leave some, uh, some, some, uh, something for us tangible, right, to think about, or maybe some of the serendipitous moments. Thank you. Right. Um, so um, I think there are two aspects, as you yourself point out, to um, uh, to Vishwabharati. One is the thinking uh, by a person, a poet, a philosopher, a, po- a person who is a who's also thinking about you know very important events uh, of uh, of his times. So the ideas in his mind and the shaping of those ideas and material forms. So there are two aspects to it. One is uh, giving shape to the institution. And he is uh, very fortunate in having someone like Prashant Chandra Mahulanavish uh, in this. So he's known Mahulanavish for a very long time. Mahulanavish is a person who would be well known to statisticians. He set up the first statistical institute in India. He was later uh, sort of, you know, invited by Nehru to sort of form the planning commission, what would later become the planning commission. So he was a he had done his tripos at Cambridge, and he was a Brahmo young man, and he came back to India. And Rabindranath had this uncanny ability to spot people, and he spotted the young Prashant Mahalanavish as a person who would be able to give shape to his ideas. So, for example, the nitty gritties of uh, of uh, writing out a constitution for a new institution, right? Uh, forming the structure of this institution. So the two people that he's depending on in a major way are his own son, Rothindranath Tagore, who he was trained as an agricultural scientist in a U.S. university at Illinois. And Prashantu Mahalanavish, also trained in the West, in Cambridge, uh, definitely not trained as an administrator, as, as a scientist, but people he believes are capable of, you know, giving uh, the material shape to this institution. Uh, so yes, they toil uh, day and night, and it is difficult, of course, to sort of, you know, truly come up to the to to sort of give shape to the ideas in a poet's head, ideas in the head of a man who has, you know, thought long and deep, but is has not thought about, you know, the nitty gritties of how this is going to take shape. So I think I call them his collaborators more than, you know, people who are just working with him. So they are giving their inputs. So the very interesting thing about Vishwabharati is, I believe, one of the things is that I call it an early experiment in democracy. Why do I say so? Because uh, Vishwabharati is set up as a society, not as a university. So in a society, you can actually have members. So people can pay a token membership fee to become a member of the Vishwabharati society. And once you become a member, and this is how you'll understand the link to the People's University happens, you can actually be elected to its highest body, which is the Parishad which later, of course, you know, goes when it becomes a central university. So people can become participatory to the making of the functioning of this institution. 
they become what he calls the friends of the institution. So it's the friends of the society. That's how he's thinking. He's not thinking of the university as a space which is cut off from the people. So uh, I think of this, therefore, as a very many-tiered but very open democratic kind of process which is at work in an institutional form. And the second is his intellectual artist collaborators. So one is the, the two people I think of as uh, collaborators are Vidushekhar Bhattacharya, Shastri Mushray, as he's often called, and Khidi Bohanshin, now always remembered as Omakta Shain's grandfather, but he was a very, very important scholar in his own uh, right, in Sanskrit, in uh, Hindi, and someone who was very well versed, who knew very well what we call popular culture. So the Bhakti movement, sort of Sufism, the the culture which was different from the mainstreaming of Hinduism or Hinduism, Hindi thinking in those times. And Vidushikar is the person who is the key to his thinking about Buddhism. He knows, he is, is a polyglot and a person who knows many languages. He knows Chinese, right? And later he will know, learn Tibetan, Persian. He And I've read his English, you know, you think of a Sanskrit pundit and you think, oh, they must be just writing in Bengali or Sanskrit. No, he writes absolutely flawless English and chastising people for moving away from the ideals of Rabindranath. Then there is Nandulal Bosho I have described, uh, just referred to, who is going to create an entirely new understanding of art in an institutional space. So not the traditional artist training that existed in the government art colleges, for example, but a kind of studio-like place, a workplace where teachers and students worked together, right? So I think Vinod Bihari Mukherjee, whose uh, who's, uh, mural forms the cover of, of my book, you know, it's a section which is taken from the details of the mural at Chinampabu. So the mural is uh, one of the sort of, you know, cooperative projects which they are taking. It's bringing art out of the studio into the public space. These are all revolutionary things which are happening. So art is not a sort of uh, confined to, to canvas. It is on the walls. It is on the floor. It is in the clothes that you wear. It is in the way that you move. All of this is the work of art. So I think... Uh, the one person who I haven't mentioned and who I would say is a real asset to Vishwamarathi is Leonard Elmhurst, who is who is also once again he is uh, uh, trained in both the UK and the US. His, his his initial training is a historian at Cambridge, and then he learns agriculture at Cornell University, and he's a major find because Rabindranath. Of course, has people, his, his own son and others, but he still wants uh, uh, Elmhurst to come. And Elmhurst just doesn't come. He comes with money. So funding is something which is a perennial problem. And Elmhurst comes with the money of Dorothy Strait, his fiancée, uh, who is uh, actually the uh, widow. And all uh, the money that she possesses is her husband's, which has actually uh, gone into the making of Cornell University. Cornell University has a huge, uh, has actually been made with the money from Cornell's uh, straight. And Vishwabharati, the Rural Reconstruction Center, is actually funded almost entirely for a very long period 
by the Elmhursts. So he finds intellectual uh, support, he fi- finds financial support, he finds people who are going to also give shape to his idea. He's always deeply unhappy because the ideas can never match or the institution can never match up to the ideas. So he will remain uh, unhappy. But it is truly amazing what these people achieve within the first 20 years uh, with people coming in from outside, from across the globe and working within, you know, so people, it's also a major national sort of pan-Indian thing that is happening. So for the first time, there are people who are coming in from Gujarat, from the southern part of India, from the north, from, uh, from the east, Gurdal Malik, for example, who comes from Punjab. Uh, then there is, uh, and I haven't mentioned them, Andrews and Pearson, who have been besotted by Rovindranath when he went to uh, England at Rothenstein's house, and uh, they come away. He is so completely overwhelmed by this man, who is also very good-looking, you have to remember. He's a great sort of, you know, uh, sort of effect on people who see him. They think that he looks like a Jewish rabbi or Christ. So he's the poet, uh, mystic poet from the East, who has a kind of appeal across religions. And people come here. And they make Shantiniketan. So Shantiniketan is not a Bengali place. It is in Bengal, but it is not a Bengali venture. And Rabindranath, in that sense, I would say, is not uh, what you would architect, you know, typically think of as a Bengali. He is, and he's not. That's how I would think Shantiniketan, in my understanding, developing in these 20 years. Wow. Thank you so much for kind of elucidating all these radicals, radical thinking. That forces us to rethink what are we doing today about education, learning, and or rootedness or responsibility, relational accountability of the local community, but also to the world, right? And as you mentioned, Rob Hagor's university is definitely part of a democratic experiment, participatory democratic experiment. And I know he might be unhappy about how things turned out, but it's still amazing. It got so many kind of like-minded people toiling together for this amazing democratic experiment. So um, I don't know, just like maybe his idea is too high for me. And this is already mind-blowing. So um, let's move to chapter three, the period of adversity, 1941 to 1950. This is a decade after Rabindranath passes away, a period you likened as a ship in a storm within sight of rocks. That's page 81. But this period, um, Rabindranath's crew still kind of stuck more or less to the poet's ideal. You opened this chapter with two quotes. One is Rabindranath's, there will always be a gap between a great ideal and an attempt to give it a shape. And another of a lecture by Srojni Naidu. I'm pretty sure I'm butchering the name. <laughs> That's on December 14th, 1946. And he said that we dare not divide today culture from culture, creed from great creed. Vishwa Bharati is the one center of learning which has understood these basic truths. We cannot live to the full statue unless we grow internationally and expand our heart and understanding. We are the heirs of all ages, learnings, and cultures. Unquote. So could you please pick maybe one or two examples of how the cohort 
all the people at Vishwabharati struggled to deal with the loss of the poet, but managed to steer clear from too much deviation from the ideal, and managed to overcome the myriad difficulties of funding, personal issues, and other things. Thank you. Right. Uh, yes. Um, I think yes. It's a very difficult period as the uh, the people in at the helm, the administrators, uh, sort of you know understand it, and also for uh, people who are inhabitants of Shantiniketan. See, Rabindranath's passing away. It's like um, uh, the 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 destruction of a huge tree that has sort of you know provided them shade, like a banyan tree. So it's a it's a major loss, right? And uh, one very interesting thing uh, about Shantiniketan is that even its uh, its morning is very muted. You know, it doesn't do that uh, kind of uh, spectacular morning that is happening in Kolkata, where actually Tagore dies. So the respect, the sense of uh, uh, adhering to these ideals of Shantiniketan and Vishwabharati is definitely there. But I think the there are two things that are happening for me uh, in this chapter. One is, uh, for example, Vidhu Shekhar Bhattacharya, who I keep mentioning, I think of him as a very important, as a key figure in uh, in Vishwabharati, who actually writes a letter to the Shongshod, which is like the court, the highest body, administrative body, uh, saying that, you know, you have deviated from the ideas. So where is, for example, the money that should go in for Zoroastrian studies, for Buddhist studies, for all these things which are central to Tagore's thinking? Why are you siphoning out that money to making buildings or for administration and so on? So uh, though they deny all these charges, they set up a committee immediately to look into the matter. So I think there is a certain kind of self-reflection which is, uh, which is becoming, which is going to become inevitable now that you know uh, Rabindranath is not there to steer them uh, through. Uh, that is one. And the second is uh, the importance of Gandhi, uh, Mohandas Karamchand Gandhi, Mahatma as he was referred to, with whom uh, Tagore had a very interesting and I would say a very complex relationship. They respected each other. They often differed from each other in their ideas, in their uh, sort of, you know, goals. But uh, Rabindranath ultimately, you know, left the institution to Gandhi, this life's best treasure. It's a ship carrying the cargo of my life's best treasure is is from a letter that he writes to Gandhi. And he says that I would want you to take care of it in my absence. And Gandhi does. You see, he's... At that point, you have to remember that, you know, India is going through the Quit India Movement, 1942. It's going through uh, the terrifying riots, 1946, and finally, you know, the partition and then the independence of India. Uh, yet Gandhi finds time to come to Shantiniketan, 1945. And he comes also because uh, he has been instrumental in setting up a fund fundraising program for Vishwabharati, which is in the memory of uh, Charles Freer Andrews, who actually happens to be a friend of both Tagore and Gandhi, which is a rare kind of thing. And uh, 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 Gandhi actually raises five lakh rupees in 1945. That's like a huge sum. I can't even imagine what it would translate as now. And uh, then he is also, because he's 
because he's a very canny person, you know, he knows that here are people who might not be able to spend the money well. So he says, give me a blueprint of how you are going to spend the money. So they um, engage Marjorie Sykes, who has been a friend of Andrew's, and he later goes to Gandhi. She later goes to Gandhi's ashram. So she draws up a blueprint of what uh, was going to be a hall of Christian studies. I haven't found any instance of that functioning as a whole of Christian studies, meaning that of Western thinking of, of just not Christianity, but of, uh, of thinking and learning in the West. And also Andrew's Memorial Hospital, which also does not exist. Right. There is a Pearson Memorial Hospital, but no Andrew's Memorial. But yet Gandhi came for the foundation of this. So there are little mysteries, actually, which I haven't been able to solve. But he comes. And in my understanding... The death of Gandhi is the second blow. The assassination of Gandhi is the second blow to the people of Vishwamitra. Because when Gandhi came for the last time, that is 1945, they all went to him and said that we have a crisis. Mahatma Ji, we are in a crisis. What is a crisis? A crisis in leadership, a crisis in funding and so on. So Gandhi says you don't have to worry about money. Money will keep coming. Right. In other words, he will see to it that there is money for Gurudev's institution. Rabindranath was referred to as Gurudev. And he says that you have the ideals of divorce. So what are you worried about? And I think that Gandhi's assassination is like such a blow to them that it is this point, which is a turning point, where they decide that they will require uh, you know, funding from the state. And also India is becoming independent. So it's not the colonial government anymore. So the qualms about taking money from the British or from a colonial system has gone. And Nehru, who is slated to be the prime minister, is very close also to both Gandhi and Tutabur. He had sent his daughter, Indira, who was going to be the next prime minister, to study Chantiniketan. So, you know, all of this is there in their mind and they believe that, and it is Bishwabharati which actually makes the first move. It's not the government. Bishwabharati makes an appeal to the government to turn it into a university of national importance and to give it a kind of recognition and a stability. So that is the moment to which it is sort of, you know, uh, moving. And there is also a deep anxiety in many people that what is going to happen now? Because so long they've functioned, maybe in financial crisis, but autonomously, with a degree of you know ability to take decisions. But what is going to happen to it once it becomes a central university? So chronologically, that is the next sort of you know chapter that I sort of move to, 51 to 61. Thank you. This chapter actually starts to make me feel sad just because they have to go through so much difficulties. But the next chapter, chapter four, In Search of a Fresh Pass, um, 1951 to 1961, makes me even sadder. You end the previous chapter with heart-wrenching questions that the aim of Vishwabharati, here I just quote, was to foster more human and creative society, but could such a dream be understood by officialdom? Would the unique character of Vishwabharati carry any meaning among politicians and bureaucrats at the time of hectic nation building? So when I read these questions, I was like, uh-oh, based on my limited readings of the history of many other nations, um, probably no. Politics kill dreams. 
scholars and administrators at Vishwabharati put up a good fight. But in 1959, when Sudhir Rajan Das was appointed the vice chancellor of the university, whom you called Ermine at the helm, page 180, and soon ousted many of the so called old guards like、um, Shilesh Chandra Chakravarti. Kshitish、uh, Roy and university's missions shifted. After that,、um, here you just said flowers and fields now came second after cement and concrete. As a central university, Vishwabharati was emerging as an apparatus of the state. Page one eighty-seven. So, could you please maybe comment on whether this is appropriation as part of the state is really inevitable? What strategies and tactics are employed were employed by the old guards in this fight against state appropriation, and what part of it of the fight could be still informative and useful for the future fight for if we want to ever start、um, another experiment to revamp higher education. Not just in India, but also, I don't know, in every nation state, that the universities basically serve the needs of the state. Right. Yes. This、uh, this is really、uh, the、uh, period that nobody is really looked into. So in many ways, this was、uh, an archival research which I was doing, also looking at、uh, official documents,、um, which had,、uh, which was.、Uh, Really, completely new to the domain of what is often called、uh, the history of Vishwamharati. So、uh, I realized that、uh, you know one of the things that I focused on, which I thought was important, was the parliament debates. You know, it is going to become a central university through a bill which is going to become an act in the parliament. So there are going to be debates about the institution, and.、Uh, Uh, there is only one person who raises the most pertinent questions. That is,、uh, C. D. Deshmukh, who is later going to be the finance minister, a person once again、uh, who studied in Cambridge, and who who、uh, probably、uh, understood Rabindranath's ideals in ways which even Nehru、uh, probably did not. You know, in a more holistic kind of way. So he said, "Let's not turn it into a university. Let's give them the money." Funding that they require, because as soon as you turn it into a university, a typical university, it is going to become a place for degree wallahs, so people with degrees, but not with an understanding of Tagore's ideals. So you know, it is going to become a place for the mediocre, and this institution, which is very unique, which is thought through in a different kind of way, will lose its uniqueness. But、uh, the other people in the parliament,、uh, including the education minister, believe that、uh, you know there is、uh, no other alternative available to them except give it a recognition as a central university. So、uh, the fight that the old guards put up—it's a very interesting question, actually,、uh, because,、uh, for example, Rohindranath Tagore, who has actually sort of. Made a major, taken an initiative to sort of、uh, give this、uh, proposal for the central university, the bill, which is going to become an act, is deeply disappointed that they are going to take away the status of the parishad, which is the highest body, right? So they say, no, 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 we can't do anything because it's not a society anymore. It's become a university, so we have to follow the university structure. So. The Parishad had actually allowed the people, as I said, the people to be part of the university. It's not going to be possible anymore.
The second thing that they say is that we will also have to take over whatever exists as assets of the university. Because henceforth, it is going to be funded by the government. So all these assets are ours. So there is a slow draining of the kind of wealth that is there. So on the one hand, they're saying we are there to rejuvenate this place or to give it a kind of support. On the other hand, they're taking away materially and also in terms of ideology and administration, what constituted the core of Bishop Bharati. So that's their taking away. Interestingly, because Nehru is uh, the prime minister who has major stake and interest in Vishwabharati, nothing collapses immediately. There is, in some senses, a kind of structure to the university. That I'll just come to it in a minute. Uh, the other thing that happens to Vishwabharati at this point is Rothindranath goes away. And he has been there from the beginning. So his going away creates a, like a major rupture. But they have as the uh, Upacharya, the Vice-Chancellor, Prabhu Chandrabhakti, who is a man, once again, like Vibhushekar, I think is like crucial to the post-41 Vishwabharati. He's an Orientalist. He's a major scholar. His work is in, is in the uh, Buddhist canon in China. And he's writing it in French because he's a student of Silva Levy. He's done his work in Paris. So he comes back to uh, take charge of the Chin Bhavun and later he becomes the choice, the first choice of the uh, of the executive uh, council as the prime as 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 the, uh, the sort of primary choice for the vice chancellor. And that's remarkable because here is a man of great learning but also a vision. So nothing collapses immediately and he's also you know working with Nehru so this is a good step so initially it seems that you know he's restructuring but in a very positive kind of way and then Prabodh Bhakti dies it's an untimely death which is also like a blow so there is blow after blow it's like you know constantly coming and uh, then there is an interim period where they have uh, temporary vice chancellors, and the next person they choose is also remarkable because he's one of the greatest scientists that India has ever had, Shotendranath Bose, who, whose work has been recognized by Einstein. So, you know, he's still a sort of very young person who has, uh, whose work has been translated by Einstein in, uh, in, into German. And he's worked the you know the boson the Bose Einstein theory. So this is a man that chooses the vice chancellor, and he's completely he's a genius, and he has his own ideas about how the institution should run, and which is very different from what the old gods think. So you know he finds it difficult also to be in Vishwabharati. Vishwabharati also has it's one of its besetting problems is that they will not want to change, so they will not want. To you know, changes to come in. But Rabindranath was a person who always believed in you know, having changes. So I think, you know, Shottin Bosch finds it difficult. And then Nehru intervenes. And he brings in another person you mentioned, Shudhiran Jandash, who has been a chief justice also of, uh, you know, uh, the Supreme Court, a man very close to uh, Nehru. And I think this is the real intervention by the state. And henceforth, it is going to become, as uh, you, you uh, sort of referred to that line, which I had almost forgotten. Yes, so buildings are going to come up. 
there is going to be money uh, flowing in. But all these uh, sort of people who were actually in fields of education, learning, they're gone. Shudhiranjan is a, is a person in the business of law. He was a former, he's an alumni. He was a former student of the school. But his only interest is in discipline and order and giving a kind of, uh, you know, uh, a material shape to a university which did not really bother so much about buildings and, uh, you know, architecture. They're beautiful architecture, even in the times of Rabindranath. But these were not central to the, you know, operations of the university. So, yes, uh, the... Robindra Bhavan, which is the museum and archive where I did most of my work, uh, which is uh, finally inaugurated in 61. And the people who are you know, instrumental in doing all this work, he removes them. And one person is Kiti Shroy. So, yeah, so Shudhi Ranjan Dash is also a very brutal kind of administrator. But he has, you know, he's the iron man at the helm and he has Nehru support. So I think uh, this is really the decisive moment of, change, you know, not the first 10 years, but post-61 is what is going to happen. Yeah, it's a very sad thing. And in 61, uh, and that's how they end the chapter, Rothindranath dies and Bidhu Shikhar Shastri dies and very soon Nandulal is going to die. So all the people who were the core of Vishwabharati are dead. So the institution is going to become very different. I end with 61. I don't make it more sad. I say, okay, Let's just, uh, and that is the centenary year of Tagore. So I say something interesting will happen in the centenary year of Tagore. So there are many conferences which are very, very interesting. The philosophy department, which becomes one of the very important centers of learning here, Kalidash uh, Bhattacharya, who is a very well-known philosopher, the standpoint philosophy, he comes in. It, there, is, uh, there is a lot of uh, new blood which is coming into many centers but uh, overall I would say that uh, the ideas of Rabindranath will henceforth be on the way. They will keep uh, sort of paying lip service to tradition and Gurudev but ultimately not understand what he wanted. Well, um, it just makes me want to cry once more. Yeah, makes me want to cry too. Um, yeah. <clears throat> but um, you know, in addition to being sad, maybe I also want to invite radio's audiences to think with us on the pressing issues of how, you know, we can radically reform our education systems so that it actually benefit the people instead of instead it's enough mass production of workers for the state, for the new neoliberal economy that's wreaking havoc of sentient beings in our lonely planet. At least I'm grateful Tagore and all his um, collaborators tried. And this task really seems hopeless even today. But without trying, there will be no meaningful change. So we, what other things we have, you know, we can do other than keep trying. So the next four chapters in your book are organized thematically. <clears throat> Each chapter on a different aspect of learning and research at Vishwabharati. Chapter 5, Oriental Research Studies, st starts with the project that Rabindranath cherished the most, the high-level, in-depth research for, of all humanities, all kind of systems of knowledge, whose um, the goal, right, the, the goal is to produce knowledge um, to be shared with the world about human flourishing. 
And throughout the years, there are many European Indologies, Buddhologies that you also mentioned earlier, who were attracted by this ideal. So even though they were trained in certain kind of positivist, post-positivist kind of objective research method, they were drawn by Rabindranath's vision, and they went to Shantinikten to work toil for that vision. As a result, we have institutions like Chin Bhavan, uh, Hindi Bhavan, and personally, I'm most interested in the career and research of the Sino-Indologist, um, Prabodh Chandra Bakchi, whom you mentioned earlier, but um, Swati, honestly, any figure discussed in this book, in this chapter, is fascinating. So maybe share with readers about one or two figures that you mostly admire. Right. Um, it so happens that your interest and my interests are completely in sync here, because I believe uh, Prabodh Chandra Bhakti is a very, very central figure to the development of Sino-Indian studies in uh, Vishwabharati and also in India, I would, uh, I would say. So... Um, the Oriental research actually was two-pronged. One was uh, focused on uh, Buddhist studies uh, and China in a major way, and uh, the which was uh, which was led spearheaded by Bidushekar Bhattacharya. Right, he's the person who knows Chinese and Tibetan. So one of the things which was happening is translation of Chinese texts into Indian languages. And these are actually Buddhist texts, mainly Buddhist texts, which have traveled from India into China during the time of great exchange between China and India, right, via the Silk Road. So, uh, Robin, this is a very interesting thing because it actually completely transforms our understanding of the relation between an original and a translation. Because it is the Chinese works which were originally translated from Sanskrit and Pali, which now become the originals for a translation back into an Indian language. And uh, so Vidushekar Bhattacharya, Prabodh Bhakti, they're all invested in translating texts. So it is also a very important project. of It's a translation project. And I've seen their writing. Uh, they're, they're making very important notes on, for example, use of certain words, the use of, uh, you know, the specificities of certain words as in used in the Chinese language and its uh, relationship to what may have been the original Pali. So um, they might seem to us to be a, a little naive and speculative, but it was very important work done at that time in the 30s, the 40s, uh, in the early 50s, I would say, and opening up uh, the India-China relationship in a major way. And this uh, was also going to become uh, uh, the, uh, the key thing in Nehru's thinking, the Hindi Chini Bhai Bhai, which was the slogan, political slogan in India. Uh, Nehru believed that a political relationship with our neighbor, with China, was very important. And the diplomatic relationship alone would not uh, suffice, so you needed to constantly have a cultural exchange. So Tanyan Shan, going back, the person who was responsible for setting up of the chain Bhavan, uh, actually got money from uh, China. So this is also set up with money from China. And uh, the building itself, which uh, if you ever come to Shantaniketan, you'll see it's one of the most beautiful buildings that we have with the script, the Chinese script that says Chin Bhavan. There is a photograph uh, which I use in my book 
of a Chinese uh, monk, Buddhist monk, who's sitting on the parapets and actually reading. And it has one of the most uh, beautiful collection of old uh, books and manuscripts and a lovely library where you can sit and read. So I think uh, the focus in Qin Bhavan is just not Chinese language, but uh, what we would call the Oriental Research Center. So Buddhist studies, uh, studies of uh, all kinds of uh, sort of new knowledge systems that have existed in Asia. So you have German. Typically, you have German Indologists who are sort of you know, going to come in. And so I think till the end of 50s, it's a very thriving place. It is just not thinking about teaching language. It is going to become a major sort of center for teaching language. The JNU is going to happen much later. Right, to the Jawaharlal Nehru University, which is the other center for teaching Chinese. Kolkata has, Calcutta University has a center, but it is nothing like the way it has been imagined in, uh, in Shantinipika. So the Chin Bhavan, which uh, uh, is, um, and uh, one of the other things that Prabhupada Bhakti, for example, does is that he sets up an Indo-Tibetan center. So he believes that Tibetan studies is as important as, as Chinese studies. And if you look at the history of what's going to happen to China, Tibet, in relation to Japan, China, Tibet, uh, you understand that, you know, how Rabindranath has, in some senses, uh, foreseen the need to have uh, uh, an idea of Asia, of a kind of collaboration in Asia, which is, of course, not going to happen. But he sees this, you know, you talk about the future paradigm. I think this is the future that he had, we could have you know, thought about. For example, he's extremely critical of Japan when it attacks China in the uh, Sino-Japanese war. He, uh, he is, uh, he's, he's always been, in, in, uh, in his understanding, against aggression. So Japanese aggression he is against. So uh, I think uh, all of this is actually shaping an idea, also the modern world, which we are going to inhabit. In a world where bilateral relationships is not going to be just a political vocabulary. Relationships are going to be formed in real terms of exchange, which is cultural, which is learning, and so on. We still actually have MOUs with Chinese universities. Our students go to China, and Chinese students from China come here. The other uh, thing is the Hindi Bhavan. The Hindi Bhavan is also the person who is sort of, you know, the key to the Hindi Bhavan is Kiti Mohan Shin, uh, who, is, as I said earlier, is uh, a person who just not, doesn't, is just not a Sanskrit pundit, but also a pundit in Hindi in the uh, alternative tradition, number thing calls the alternative tradition. Uh, a very important scholar who comes to Shantini Ketun and uh, also trains under both Tagore and Kitty Monchin is Hazari Prasad Devi. And together, I think they are creating a kind of center where Hindi Bhavan, like Jin Bhavan, is not just about Hindi languages, but it is about the non-mainstream, the alternative traditions that exist in India. The Bhakti movement, for example, a major work center of work in uh, in Shantiniketan has been the Bhakti movement. And here, very briefly, I would like to say that the visual arts is not separate from the uh, Oriental learning. For example, the Jain Bhavan has beautiful murals by the artists of Kalabhavan. So, uh, Noti Puja, which is one of the uh, sort of uh, you know, 
sort of poems, which turns into a dance drama that Rabindranath has written about this uh, young woman who is uh, converting herself, who is uh, turning towards Buddhism and who gets killed by the king who is a uh, Hindu. And uh, of course, the murals of Pinut Bihari that I referred to, and many images of, uh, of from the lives of Buddha, right? So the temptation of Buddha before he becomes Buddha, Siddhartha. So all these are done by the uh, artists of Palabhavan, both the teachers and the students. The Hindi Bhavan has the famous murals by Binod Bihari, which is called the Medieval Saints. Right. So he is uh, working in very close collaboration with the scholars in imagining all these uh, you know, traditional uh, scholars with people who are actually off mainstream. So Kabir, uh, Nanak, Dadu, and others, you know, who are whose whose center is in Varanasi, so it's really following like the flow of the river, and it's looking at ordinary lives of ordinary people, lives of you know people who are doing ordinary things. For example, weaving. For example, working at other kinds of occupations. So, this I think is a, a very important aspect of then uh, Shantiniketan, which saw the entire campus as coming together in all its uh, unique sort of, you know, disciplines. So learning, oriental learning, which is just not limited to textual studies, and visual arts, which is going to come in to make enrich this. Kolabhavan, which had, you know, uh, which produced Rankin Corbage, who did one of the most beautiful outdoor sculptures. Now, we call them installation art now. These are permanent installation art. And this is something that no other university is sort of, you know, can boast of. Uh, 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 an artist who was a student, who belonged to uh, the marginal community, who was completely maverick, and he did some of the most interesting expressionist art, abstract art. You know, it, it, at first I was quite surprised that uh, the only uh, Indian, uh, two Indians that is actually mentioned in a book on expressionism are Rabindranath Tagore, the artist, and Ram King Corbage. So German expressionism actually includes uh, Tagore and Beige. So these are people who are just working in, you know, fields which are, which is developing in constant uh, sort of, you know, conversation and you know, constant sort of dialogue with each other. So yes, I think uh, this is what uh, what I would say is the core of. Thank you, thank you, Swati. So beautifully said. So um, now I, we actually see what Vishwabharati meant on the ground, right? So each institute is like a jewel in the Indra's night. Right. It has its own rootedness, it has its own boundedness, but at the same time also like infinitely connected, connected and reflecting like all other aspects. So um Wang Oriental Studies is one example, but chapter six moved to the amazing visual and performing arts. So the poet Rabindranath was intimately involved with this particular aspect of cultural life at Shantinikten. For example, the creation of the Kalabhavan, Sangeet Bhavan, and the training of many women artists and artisans. And of course, men were there too. But 
I'm most interested in the women, especially the women singers who specialize in Rabindranath Sangeet. Please tell readers more about them. Who were they? What were they?、Um, what have they achieved? And of course, feel free to comment on other important figures, figures like um, written Mazumdar, the modern Indian designer, or the renowned filmmaker、um, Satyajit Ray. But please, any figure that you studied in this chapter is just like amazing life, amazing story. Right. Yes.、Um, uh, this this is a story which I like.、Uh, sort of, you know, this is how I liked、uh, talking about Shongit、uh, Bhavan. See, initially it was one Bhavan, the Kala Bhavan and Sangit Bhavan together, but in the nineteen thirties, early nineteen thirties, there is a separate Shongit Bhavan or Sangit Bhavan. So Rabindranath actually,、uh, you know. Uh, gives the Oriental Research、uh, Center to Vidyashekar to Kitty Mohan, beginning with Silva Levy. So he's not interfering in its、uh, sort of functioning or even in its intellectual, you know, thinking. Kalabhavan has been given to Nandulal, so whose Nandulal is also, you know, has structured it and thought through it in a certain way. But with Shongi, because he is himself the great lyricist and also singer, he is the guru. So there are these fantastic accounts in the memoirs. You know, this is the chapter when where I use memoirs in a major way,、uh, where uh, especially women talk about how they were called for rehearsals in which Tagore himself was the guru. So he would tell them how to sing or how to perform, and、uh, he would often write. You know, there is this、uh, particular artist who. Uh, whose life is also very tragic, but who is exceptionally talented, Amita Shin, Kuku as she was called, to distinguish from Amita Shin's mother, and、uh, Rabindranath was very fond of her, and he would send little chits to her hostel to say, you know, come,、uh, and I've written a song, and this is a song which only you can sing. So、uh, he had very close personal bondings also with uh, these uh, these particularly uh, women, also men, but with women. So uh, famous uh, singers um, uh, of this time were of the nineteen thirties and forties were Konika Bandopadhyay, whose centenary year we are celebrating now.、Uh, a little earlier, Rajeshwari Dotto, who was born a Punjabi. But learned Bengali, and、uh, you know he, she sang in 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 Bengali.、Uh, I was first introduced to Rajeshwari songs by my mother, who was also a singer. And amazing, a different, an absolutely different kind of rendition. So it's not just Ashahana Devi or Girija Devi or people who are coming in from different regions singing. But to go back to the story of Konika, who is referred to as Mohor. And Shujitra Mitra, who also came from a different background, she she comes in actually after Tagore's death from the IPTA, from the you know the background of political leftist political movement, or Nilima、uh, Shen, who was、uh, a student here. And the story of Nilima Shen is actually very interesting. I just like to this an anecdote which I like sharing that she was so talented that she was actually、uh, allowed to do classes in Shongit Bhavan when she was in school. So this is a kind of openness that we're talking about. See, this is something that we talk about now: choice-based credit system. We didn't call it anything, but if you had the ability, you could actually do what is called the majoring in one、uh, subject, or even if you're in school, it didn't matter. If you were good enough, you would be actually singing with, you know, older.、Uh, 
men and women and performing also so this is a story of uh, uh, the women you know they were very talented they were often friends sometimes a little uh, sort of like rivals and this is the time when the long playing record starts coming out in india you know in, in so th- these are being recorded it's come out before but these young women start recording so tagore songs find a kind of permanence in these recordings and these are there are men who are also singing and there is a lot of controversy with the vishwabharati music board which i'm not going into but uh, the visual arts and uh, the performing arts the kala bhavan and shangit bhavan are working in close tandem for example it is ritin mojumdar who you mentioned very interestingly who writes about nilima shen and uh, as a very good sportswoman so you think about singers as you know people who are sort of not into sports or physical exercise no she would run and win races and then come back and sing and uh, you know we know of, uh, uh, people like artists like shankar choudhury who were actually graduating in science in mathematics but became a very famous sculptor jaya apaswami who became who was one of very important critics who also studied science so i don't think that there is any rigid division between what you were reading you know formally and what your aptitude was you could you know pursue all of this together um Ray Shotrit Ray, Ray as he is often referred to known globally, was a student uh, briefly in Shantiniketan, late thirties, uh, and he leaves right after Tagore's death. And um, uh, Prithish Niyogi is uh, one of his classmates, who is actually probably one of the most perceptive critics, you know, art historians uh, that uh, who I have ever read. So you know. if you've seen ray's films or if you know about him as a director you know he did the storyboard the storyboard was sketches that he did you know of each scene and that's the training that he had in kolapur he was trained under nandilal bosh and the sketch is became the strongest point he worked in an advertising agency ray did soon after he left kolapur uh, interestingly in kolapur he was a bit of a recluse so his interests were uh, in western classical music and alex aronson who is uh, was one of the people who is one of the german jews who sort of came away to india and to shantiniketan to avoid persecution was one of his friends so it is also you know there are many sort of little groups in shantiniketan so you can't even call it very traditional uh, indian in in some sense so ray aronson doing their own uh, things about you know western classical music uh pursuing a field which is in which they were going to become very very uh, ray definitely was going to become world famous and ray always considered vinod bihari as also his guru vinod bihari is the artist who's gradually going to lose his sight so ray has a film called the inner eye which you might wish to look at which is about the life of vinod bihari inner eye because he goes blind and then he still does these fantastic and i can't tell you how fantastic these are these are cutouts that he's doing and he feels he sort of touches and feels and does these uh, does this work so yes i think uh, it's uh, it's amazing and rithin mojumdar of course modern uh, very important modern designer uh, the person uh, who actually gives rise to this entire uh, idea of uh, you know design coming into fabric in fabric and clothes fab india which is what we know of as a major indian brand is actually you know 
central idea is that of Ritim Matunda, who's breaking free from traditional ideas, doing abstract work. And he's giving shape to a new understanding of design, just not decoration, but design in uh, in a more integral, in integrated sense. So yes, and there are people here. K.G. Subramanian, one of the greatest artists that um, India has had, is a student in the 40s in, uh, in um, Palapavan. And uh, he's a great writer and uh, a person who is sort of, you know, a storyteller. And the, and the murals, if you come into Palagawan, you'll see them. The murals of Palagawan, which you can see, are by K.D. Subramanian. And the, it's done on black. And then there are these tiles, which are the designer tiles, which he did when he was 80. He would actually go up in the ladder and actually do the work. I've met K.D. Subramanian. He was amazing also in his sense of humor. And uh, the way in which she would sort of, you know, const- be a constant reminder that not all of Tagore's ideals were dead by 41. They kept being alive. They kept being rethought of and reinterpreted by people who wanted to. So, yes, Palavaran is an amazing uh, history. It has all, the, I use all the memoirs that was available. I loved the stories, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, Shantinikta is definitely, definitely the place that nurtures so many great minds. So in that sense, maybe institutionally is no longer what it is, but at least it nurtured so many amazing figures, so many amazing lives. So in that sense, it is a success because like the singers can be also very sporty, very athletic, and then everybody has like multiple majors inhabiting all kinds of um, ways of knowing. That's, I think, the ideal, like actually education, right? Like not specialized, creating efficient workers, but creating a fully developed human beings talking about human flourishing. So chapter seven, um, it's about Rabindranath's um, rural reform. Maybe somewhat boring chapter for some, but for me, it's just another fascinating aspect of the expensiveness of, of Rabindranath's vision for creating a new way of life that benefits all. But it's also a, a little bit sad chapter because despite Rabindranath's kind of effort to uh, an effort of many who shared his vision and compassion and passion, right, the rural reconstruction in Srinikten at the end, contrary to what Rabindranath uh, would have liked it to be, right, that's a boat of grace and prosperity. By the 1940s, he wrote, it's been reduced to a center whose only work was to provide a steady supply of fresh vegetables, milk, and cheap but beautiful handloom saris to residents of Shantinikten, and the deeply hierarchized relationship between the two places, expressed often as the high intellectual aesthetic work of Shantinikten versus the low manual labor of Srinikten, that continued to hold sway. That's on page 357. Please just share, share with the audience, what's your thoughts on why Rabindranath's kind of dream was broken once again? And what are the forces that reify such unfair and I'd say unjust hierarchization of those two kinds of labor? Right. I think Nisrinikitan uh, is Rabindranath's most bold and most radical uh, you know, thinking of, about, uh, about education, about learning. 
and uh, connected intimately with the life of the ordinary people, uh, with uh, the soil, as I uh, keep uh, referring to it as. So uh, I think initially, uh, this Riniketon story is fantastic because there is it, it is it is a hugely difficult thing because most people tend to think of uh, physical labor, manual labor as belonging to the work of the lower class and the lower caste also. So it is breaking class caste barriers in order to sort of, you know, rethink, uh, reorganize uh, village economy. So Elmhurst talks about this in a in a very um, very significant memoir called the Poets and the Plowman. He says that uh, you know um, we were faced with many obstacles, but one of the obstacles was the obstacle of the mind, where the bhadralok, the middle class, refused to understand you know why they would have to work with lower class people in order to sort of do this. So, but it it has broken. I think um, one of the most significant things of this Riniketan project uh, is the survey. You see, Rabindranath understands that you cannot do any work unless and until you have an understanding of the real crisis, the real need of the place. And the real need of the place is to have an idea to, you know, which is not government survey, but a survey based on what the people are thinking, what are the real problems of the people. So malaria, as I said, is one of the major problems. Harry Timbers is a doctor who comes in. And one of his major projects in in Sriniketan is the eradication of malaria. And he he thinks about a health cooperative. So in those days, you know, you're saying that, you know, the villagers will pay, let us say, one anna. And then the institution will sort of, you know, also pay an equal amount. So you are a stakeholder. This word called stakeholding that we talk about is actually happening in Srinikit. Agriculture. Unfortunately, uh, it is then those days hybrid crops that they think are the solution to the problem. You know, this is a thing which happens as part of even the Green Revolution. So hybrid, more uh, high yielding varieties of crops developed experimentally and then then you know farmers asked to sort of uh, uh, take them to their fields poultry farming big thing dairy poultry these are major things unfortunately yes it becomes like you know Sriniketan. typically this is bengali middle class they will say of course you know they will have to produce that and we intellectuals will sort of consume it but uh, one major thing which is happening in Sriniketan is the shilpo shodan right which is the uh, craft center and this is largely the work of Tagore's son Rukhindranath who is reviving he and his wife Potima Devi who is also a very important figure in the Shantiniketan Sriniketan story is an artist trained in, in, in Paris a friend of Andre Carpelle and but she's also a great collector of folk art so one of the things which they try to do is to revive indigenous systems of uh, you know art craft break this barrier between art and craft so you know the designs which are being evolved by people in Palapagun, they're going to Sriniketan and they're becoming you know uh, things which are a part of the products which are then finding a market so in I was stunned to look at you know in the course of my archival reading I found uh, sort of you know letters uh, exchanged which said that you know we're doing great profit during the war which is the Second World War. And there is a huge demand for leather goods and various other things. And they opened a new showroom in Kolkata, 
Calcutta, uh, and they are doing major profit. You know, so it's not uh, actually a sad story in the forties. It's amazing, you know, and I think it's the going away of Rothindranath, which is a major setback to uh, Sriniketan. But I would also say that you know, once it becomes a central university, then the the centre has its ideas of you know thinking about rural development. So instead of recognizing that the work has actually been begun in Sriniketan, it imposes its own ideas about you know how rethinking on rural India is going to be. So that is a sad story. Uh, Rothindranath has high hopes. You know, he has this major conference which he's doing there, and he thinks that the government will acknowledge the role that has been played by you know uh, the rural reconstruction in Sriniketan, but they don't do that. They say, okay, we have this map, so you better fit in into this map, right? So this is bureaucracy. This is administration. This is how the government functions. So. This is the sad story. What had actually existed as a blueprint in Shantiniketan, in Sriniketan, does not get its recognition. This, for me, is the saddest story in Sriniketan. Uh, Sriniketan, even when I came here many years ago, I have the most beautiful woodwork from Sriniketan. The pottery that they used to make, the 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 indigo dye that they made for you know for for, for fabric, I have never seen anything like this in my life. And now they have all gone. So over the years, these have deteriorated. Even while there is this constant drumming of fundraising, 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 Srinikitan could have been a major fundraising program, and yet lopsided thinking has not allowed them to think about this as a source of funding. So yes, I think uh, there is this crisis at many levels, which is uh, happening uh, to Srinikitan. Yes, the Srinikitan story is becomes a very sad story, and uh, it is. It also the the this layout of Srinikitan is actually far more planned than that of Shantiniketan. It's a much later project. They have a school which is oriented more towards vocational education. They have a boy uh, scout system which is called the Brati Bala. So where the young boys go to the villages and they work closely with the villagers. So what you would call uh, sort of you know social work, social service, all of that is built into the thinking of Rabindranath as part of Vishwabharati. And Sriniketan is, I think, is probably the most uh, radical thinking that. Has ever done, and I just want to add a bit to this that in a long before the uh, Sriniketan chapter begins, Rabindranath's involvement with rural uh, life, with rural economy, uh, can be traced back to his own uh, status as a zamindar. He was sent by his father to go and oversee the uh, lands which were part of the zamindar uh, zamindari of the Tibors. And when he got the Nobel Prize, which is a lot of money those days, he set up agricultural banks. This is one of the first things that I noted. And uh, agricultural banks were very important so that the farmers could get loan at much lower rate of interest than they were taking from the they were getting from the um, money lenders. So you know, long before and much more important to him even more important than the school which he had sent up with, set up with so much love, were the peasants. So not the pupils, but the peasants. And he said, you know, I would never have been without this, uh, the presence of uh, these people who've toiled for so many years. So of course, that's where the money goes. Wow. 
I, there, really is a, there is an article which I wrote for the EPW, which I'll send you a link to that. Yeah, send me a link, and I want that to share it with you. Most, yeah, it is one of the most interesting things that Rabindranath is has ever done. You know, and we don't talk about it. You know, we talk about, and I think Amartya ideas are also largely, in that sense, Tagorean when he talks about this. You know, uh, different index of development. I think he also has Rabindranath in his mind. You know, Tagore never learned economics. He never learned anything in that sense. But he knew all of this. I'm sounding like uh, like an impossible idealist, but I think, yes, he had an ability to pick up and an ability to uh, sort of develop on it in ways that you know certain people have. I'm sure there are other people across the globe who have also done it. In Tibor, they will come together. Yeah, that's what I think. I you know is happening. Yeah, that's once once more shows that learning and formal education doesn't need to be. It's not the same thing. Learning can happen with or without universities. And but the way Rabindranath conceived it, right? Craftsmanship, basic economic life, and just pick up knowledge wherever you go by absorbing different indigenous knowledge system. This is just like what he's trying to, to do. So um, very amazing details and very amazing kind of a radical, another phase of Rabindranath Tagore that, and his family and Ratindran, and his son Ratindranath, right? That we didn't really get to see until you, your book in English. So now we finally move to chapter eight. That's a totally different chapter compared with others. It's more about the formations of the material conditions of Shantinikhtan, its surroundings of forests as uh, Sivan settlements, its landscape, landscape is buildings, there are important places to hang out, there's architecture, the town's planning, there are women's organizations, festivals, celebrations, and of course, how it feels like to live there in such a close-knit community with many crisscrossing effective bonds. So I don't know where to start, but maybe share with us the building of um, Cha Chakra, the tea house, and the culture of Ada in, at Shantinikten. What does the culture of Ada at Vishwabharati and how do they relate to, you know, the broader Bengali culture of Ada? Thank you. I think that is, uh, I'm so glad that you picked this up from the Shantinikten uh, sort of section, which as you say, is, you know, it's, it's like, you know, uh, draws upon many things. I just wanted to give uh, my readers a sense of the space of Shantinikten. Chachokro, the tea uh, sort of, you know, circle, uh, literally, developed around a building, uh, architecturally very, very unique. It's it's like a many uh, sort of sided uh, building with murals by Nandulal Bush, who had actually gone to China. So it has the tea ceremony, the murals of tea ceremony in, inscribed, you know, and painted inside. I don't know if they let uh, us uh, go there anymore, but it is a two-story structure. But most addas uh, typically uh, developed around tea stalls. So people uh, and the one person who I haven't mentioned, but who is a very, very important um, uh, sort of uh, person in terms of uh, a writer, also a, a person who sort of learned French and German, was Shoyad Mustaba Ali. 
Musaba Ali was one of the first students of uh, Shantanuketan. Uh, there are many other people, very important scholars, uh, including people like Kitty Chen and others who would come in, largely male, I would say, you know. Women were not being part of this uh, church after they were large women largely remained uh, at home when they were not participating in uh, the more uh, specific you know disciplinary programs discipline oriented programs like the adda as you uh, rightly uh, point out is a very bengali uh, sort of thing so the adda is an informal kind of uh, a place where you get together informally uh, and well drink tea and talk about everything that is possible under the sun it could be politics largely bengalis talk a lot about politics they talk about sport cricket uh, they talk about uh, football a major obsession bengali obsession for football they talk about films film stars and the making of films as if they could have been great directors themselves they talk about history. They talk about, you know, how their learning is not confined to books. So the Atta is a very, Dipesh Chakravarti has a, the historian Dipesh Chakravarti has a very interesting chapter on the Adda, I think, in provincializing Europe. So uh, Addas were often uh, held in the house of someone, often a person who was a uh, who was um, a well-known writer or an artist, uh, or a film personality. In uh, Shantiniketan in the 50s, uh, the Attas were held in the house of Annada Shankarai. Annada Shankarai was an ICS. They, he was in the Indian uh, civil services, but he retired and he settled in Shantiniketan. He was one of the major satirists and poets of, uh, of uh, you know, uh, ben, uh, Bengali. Uh, his uh, wife, American wife, uh, who was called Leela. Uh, she was also a very important sort of focus of a uh, you know, center around foreign students, especially sort of congregated around her. Her tea making and cakes, her tea and cakes were a sort of uh, uh, very well-known. Wendy Doniger has spoken about her days in um, Shantin Kitten. She was here in the, in the 50s, I think, no, 60s. 50s, late 60s, no, not 50s, 60s. And she talks about, you know, how, what a wonderful place it was. And she talks about Kitty Shroy's daughters. So I think there are many kinds of Addas which are happening. Uh, very, you know, male, scholarly uh, sort of Adda which is happening in maybe the Chachapur or tea stall. Addas which are happening at home around what women are doing. The women's organization develops from one such, uh, the Alapini Mohila Shomiti, develops around, uh, you know, uh, one such uh, women are making the tea they are uh, making the snack and so you know why should they not have their own organization so i think there are many forms of the adda which is happening in chakrabarti is a very small place in this very small place you have different kind of addas around different kinds of people and personalities which there is an adda around rovindranath when he's alive so everybody goes in the evening and sits in his many one of his many houses, and there is a reading of a play. Or he's he was a great raconteur, a man with a great sense of humor. So they would go and congregate, and there would be an adda. So the adda tradition around Rabindranath gradually sort of you know moves to many other places, especially in his absence. Yes, the adda is a very important circulation of social and cultural energy.
I would say. Yeah. And the gossip. Huge amounts of gossip. When I came to Shantaniketan, I thought gossip was its you know, primary industry. <laughs> yeah. But it's also amazing, kind of, uh, I don't know, part of the participatory democracy that you talk about things, you get to learn things. Of course, there are gossips, but, you know, it's much better just than sitting in front of TV, watch news and read books, right? I mean, those are valid ways of learning, but like others, it's such more lovely kind of a communicative participatory ways of understanding a culture and, and a life. And you know, learning a way of learning. So we've taken a lot of your time. Is there anything else in the book that we didn't have time to discuss, but you'd like to highlight for the listeners and readers? I mean, I skipped the epilogue because it's very sad. I don't want to talk about it. But other than that, anything else? Oh uh, no, really, Jessica. I think you know this is the most thorough uh, sort of you know set of questions, probing and insightful questions that anyone has ever put to me, and you know taken the book f- uh, from one chapter to the other and with links. So I really think you know uh, this has made me go back to the book. It's uh, been more than a year that it has been published in many. Written finally, the manuscript was submitted in 21. So it was like revisiting uh, the book, and it was, uh, in many senses, your gift to me to, to, to go back and to look at this book and look at it through your eyes. I think that has been the most uh, beautiful experience uh, of uh, being able to you know, talk to you. Uh, as of now, I think it's been the most exhaustive uh, you know, discussion that I've ever done of uh, Tagore's university. And I'm so grateful to you for taking this uh, initiative uh, for this uh, book. We leave uh, things to hopefully what the readers might want to discover. But thank you for writing such an amazing book. It totally draws me in the whole world of Shantinikten and Tagore's kind of um, ideal and make me want to see, like maybe we should do other experiments around the world. But anyway, um, thank you again for this solid scholarship, amazing storytelling. But before we part of our ways, I'd like to ask one last traditional New Books Network question. What are you working on? What keeps you busy? Oh, what uh, keeps me busy really is a lot of teaching now and uh, some administrative work. But I would like to go back since... Uh, not all my research was exhausted in, in this book, and I don't talk much about Tagore, really. So I would like to, and I'm thinking this through, I would like to uh, explore the idea of Rabindranath as a public intellectual, you know, as a person who's, uh, as Edward Said says, the public intellectual is a person who, uh, whose original vocation uh, or whose uh, role far exceeds his original vocation. So as he's recognized as a poet, but his vocation became of that of uh, a public speaker in the sense of a person who would protest against injustice, who would protest against the terrifying nature of colonial practices, but also all kinds of aggression uh, and uh, an attempt really to try and create a kind of balance. Uh, The debates with Gandhi, I think, are very important 
important, very pertinent uh, for our times. One of the questions which Tagore actually, you know, it's a public debate which is happening and he says, one day we will be free, become independent, but who will become our masters? Will then the relationship between Indians become that of the master and this person he's serving? What is going to be the nature of our politics? If we do not do a complete overhauling of our systems of thinking, of our hierarchies, of our relationship between the city, country and the city, of our ways of uh, living, of going back at least to an idea of India, and much of this is actually something that you could find in the argumentative Indian Mayamurthishin. So I think I would like to explore at least from 1913 to 1941, uh, Rabindranath's role, and he's a very, very important public figure. You see, everyone calls him, and everyone wants his opinion on things. So beginning with Mussolini to, uh, the, to, to, to uh, you know, uh, uh, Latin America. So he's called in almost all places. He travels widely. He goes to the whole of Southeast Asia. He goes to Iraq, Iran. So I think these are aspects of Rabindranath which I have not been able to explore in this book. This book was about the institution primarily. So I would like to maybe, you know, if I can devote a little more of my research to this, I would like to talk about um, uh, Rabindranath as the public uh, sort of you know, uh, intellectual, and I would also like to think of himself or think of him as a very lonely figure, as a person who's often walked alone in the sense of he his ideas, his political beliefs have not always found a kind of resonance in his times. But it is for the future. In many senses, Rabindranath is a person not of his times, but you know, for our times. Uh, no. so I, that's probably what I would like to do. I'm never sure, but yes, maybe. Wow, wow. Definitely get that done. I won't read that book already. Tagore on Latin American, Iran, world traveler, kind of global public figure. Yes, it's definitely the, I want the book I want to read and interview again. So um, thank you so much for your time for writing this amazing book, for sharing so many insights that we have to process really just in the long term. And I have to reread your book. And, and also I'm looking forward to reading your new work. But before we leave, just a reminder for my listeners, you can order the book from ABE Books. You can find the link to ordering, um, you know, uh, for, order, for, for the ordering of this book on, on the blog post of this interview. And I will also share the article that Swati, Professor Swati um, Gangli just mentioned in your interview. And honestly, for listeners and readers, if you care about how to revamp our education system, how to remake our social economic life, maybe start with this book. It would enrich our thinking. He is, Tagore is a figure, not of his time, but for our times. So thank you very much. <laughs>